I have roots in St. Louis. I've never been here before, but I was so looking forward to being here for a number of reasons. One, because my great-grandfather lived here. He was an electrician, a Jewish man called Isidore Cash. And uh, he, he left this beautiful city for Southern Africa because of the lure of gold. And he met my great-grandmother, who was also a Russian Jew. She'd fled the persecution of Jewish people, and they met and fell in love and, and uh, worked on a mine in uh, Southern Africa. So it's great to explore a city that I have some family roots in. If you know anything about anyone to do with Isidore Cash, I'm kind of hoping it'll be connected to Johnny Cash in some way. I'm not sure. Anyway, I'd love to meet that kind of person. Why don't you turn with me to the book of Philippians? It's uh, one of Paul's letters, the Apostle Paul, written from prison. And uh, I'm going to read to you the first 14 verses. I know that you're in the middle of a series in 1 Peter called Testing and um, Tested. I'm going to make some reference to that. But I want to talk about fighting for joy. So this is the word of the Lord. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I wanted you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has, has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Philippians is known as Paul's letter of joy. Sixteen times in the first chapter, the word joy or rejoice is used. It's, it's dripping with, with hope. It's dripping with a sense of affection, and, and it's a winsome letter. And it's written from this Ephesus prison. And he's writing to the church in Philippi that was planted about ten years earlier. And what happened was that there was this dream that Paul had of a man from Macedonia calling him. And this man in the dream called him over and Paul just left the next day with his friends and they decided to go to Macedonia. And there they started a Bible study 
next to a river, and Paul just preached the gospel. And there was a lady called Lydia. She was a businesswoman, and the Lord opened her heart to the gospel, and she became a Christian, and then she opened her home to the church, and this church was born. And then there was a slave girl who was possessed by a demon, and Paul prayed for her, and she was wonderfully set free. But, but the freedom actually caused real kind of rioting in the, in, in, the, in the city. And Paul and Silas were thrown into prison. And we find in Acts 16, Paul and Silas are in prison, false accusation, and they are worshiping God, singing hymns to him in the middle of the night. And God sends a mighty earthquake. Many of us know the story. The, the bars fly open, the chains fall off. And all the prisoners want to go free. Paul actually keeps them where they are and says to the jailer who wants to kill himself because he can't do his job, don't worry, all the prisoners are here. And the jailer is so kind of awakened by this that he has a conversation with Paul and comes to faith. Saved, baptized, him and his whole family. And this is how the church is born. It's born in an outbreaking of power. And so Paul, 10 years later, is writing to them from a different prison now, an Ephesus prison. And I wonder, when, when, when I read this, I think, how was Paul's soul? I mean, I wonder if Paul sat there going, 10 years ago, what was that hymn I sang? What was that song I sang? What was that psalm I sang? Come on, Lord, do it again. Do it again, please, Lord. Send an earthquake. This time, no earthquake. This time, no earthquake. And yet the letter drips with joy. This is what he says. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. And I simply want to ask, what was the secret of Paul's unsinkable buoyancy? How was he so buoyant? By all accounts, he had no right to be joyful. Falsely accused because of Christ Jesus, he's in prison He's reliant on people outside. He's apparently going blind. An old man. He's never got married. The churches that he's planted are under stress. He's writing to a church, one, that has fighting, infighting between the leaders. Plus, he hears of these people who are peddling God's word for profit, prosperity preachers, and also other people that are corrupting the true gospel. Of course, he's desperate to try and get out. And yet he says, in every prayer of mine, I make my prayer with joy and thanksgiving. You have to say, well, Paul's joy that he speaks of was not circumstantial. It was not circumstantial at all. We have to conclude that it wasn't temperamental either. Paul was not just kind of a, a born happy, sanguine, type A, life of the party kind of guy. I think often if we, if we wrestle with joylessness, we go, well, well, that's because either of my circumstance or otherwise that's just the way I was, I was born. I personally, I cry easily, more easily than I laugh. When my friends, if they honor me, they might honor me for my integrity or my peace or my, my sense of faith. They very seldom say, Alan is such a joyful person. And for many years I was just like, well, that's just not the way I'm wired. And I do want to be incredibly sensitive to those who wrestle with, with issues of chemistry, because, because chemistry is part of our emotional makeup. And anxiety and oppression and depression is not a simple thing. It's not a, a one-sermon series. But what we do see in Paul's life is that he didn't seem to be a naturally happy guy. 
He says to the church in Ephesus, I warned you night and day with tears. He says to the church in, in Corinth, I came to you with fear and trembling. He was kind of an introverted guy, preferred writing letters than speaking. He describes his life as hard pressed on every side, yet not crushed, sorrowful, yet rejoicing. There was an interesting mix in Paul's psyche that really encourages me. How about you? He wasn't just a naturally happy guy. And in many ways, if we're going to learn about joy, what's the secret of joy? We don't want to learn from a naturally happy person. I mean, if you want to learn about music, you don't want to learn from a maestro. And How do you do that? It just came naturally. Or about math from like a child prodigy mathematician. How do you do that? Oh, it just came naturally. You actually want to learn from someone to whom it did not come naturally. Although joylessness is complicated, what we learn from the Scripture is that we are not powerless in the face of a lack of joy. There is a remedy. There is a remedy. We're not stuck. We might be stuck in confinement, in prison, but we don't have to be stuck in joylessness. Paul refuses to put anyone or anything in charge of his joy. There's something else. There's something deeper. C.S. Lewis says that joy is the serious business of heaven. That Jesus, who was acquainted with sorrows, also was anointed with joy above his fellows. Jesus wants to teach us to be people who might be sorrowful, yet we are rejoicing. So how does that, how does that look? I don't know about you, but every now and again, I've had kind of a, a red warning light that I have a real joy deficit. About three years ago was one of those moments when I had my mother-in-law visiting out from South Africa. And this is not like a dog your mother-in-law moment. She's an amazing, gracious lady. But you know, when your mother-in-law is living with you, it's kind of like you just want to put your best foot forward and just impress her. And so, you know, we would, we'd had a couple of weeks with her and it was going okay. We went off to church on a Sunday morning. I preached twice. I thought I preached really well and she seemed impressed. And then we took her off to my daughter's soccer game. And my daughter plays goalkeeper in a club team and they would reach the final. And it was just going to be amazing. The mother-in-law was going to be so impressed with this team. And it got to uh, second half, and my daughter's team was 1-0 down. And her striker got this runaway, beat everyone except the final defender, got to the final defender, and the final defender just doesn't even tackle, just pushes her down. Just seriously, red card, it should have been penalty on the spot, we should have equalized, and the ref does nothing about it. So like, something boils over in me, and it wasn't joy. And actually, a number of the other parents as well get up on their, on their feet and go, Ref! Should be a red card! Penalty! Only problem was, I did it just a little bit longer and a little bit louder. And I ended up right on the field of play. Ref! 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 Didn't know that all the other parents had gone back to their seats. And the ref actually did card someone. It was me. He just said, Off! And I thought, Okay, back to the bleachers. So I backed off, back to the bleachers, kind of grumbling. And he says, no, off the field of play. And so now in front of my mother-in-law, in front of some people that I'd preached to that morning, I do the walk of shame, <laughs> the walk of shame. I kid you not, I get to my car, and the ref says, leave the grounds. 
I had to do the drive of shame. And this ref was like 21 years years old. He's like passive aggressive. What's your problem, you know? Oh, my gosh. So I missed the game. I missed the game. I can't even remember who won, who lost. But I certainly lost. And I was at home, and I was just going, God, there is a joy deficit in my life. And I actually started a series in our church called Fighting for Joy, which was kind of for me more than anyone else. And uh, realized that, that, that in the early church, there were moments of the outpouring of joy. Pentecost was one of them, where the disciples were filled with inexpressible joy from the outside in. And we all have those moments where God just meets with us and there's an outpouring of the Spirit's joy. But actually, they didn't just see joy as a gift to receive, to be received from the outside. They saw joy as fruit to be born from the inside out. If we are slaves to the moment of outpouring, what about in between the moments? Paul was not in a Pentecost kind of moment. He was in prison. And yet he had a kind of joy that was rooted in the gospel, his understanding of the gospel and his rejoicing in the gospel that I believe would be an incredible tool for you and I in our joylessness. What can we learn from his joy? Firstly, he had incredible gospel gratitude. Verse 2 and 3, I thank my God because of your partnership in the gospel. For you are all partakers with me of grace. Have you ever received a prison letter? A letter from prison? I've received two, and they are all please letters, not thank you letters. They are all please send me money. Send me food. Send me a lawyer. Send me anything. Understandably, this is a thank you letter from prison. Every time I think of you, I thank my God with joy. Are you kidding me? A thank you letter from prison? What's going on in this guy? What's going on is that Paul is going through a personal famine, but in the middle of it, he is feasting on the gospel. You are all partakers in the gospel with me. Sometimes God in in, in his kindness like we heard this morning, will allow us to go through a physical famine to teach us to feast on the gospel again. You see, all of us have hopes and dreams and desires, and that's absolutely fine. But what Paul is saying is those things are not solid joys. Because seasons will come and go, and if our joy is resting on what we're hoping for, what happens when our hope is disappointed or delayed? And so he's looking back to the gospel, which is the announcement of good news that Christ has won a war that we could not win. And saying, I'm hoping for this. It's not coming, but at least I can rejoice in what has been done. See, my friends, so easily we can lose our joy in the gospel. But the gospel is not just a moment where we get rescued from eternal separation from God. It is that the gospel reaches, the renewing power of the cross reaches to every place and redeems and restores every place in which the curse is found. And Paul is just saying, I have been saved, but I am being saved, and I'm rejoicing in this beautiful salvation that I have. We rejoice in the fact that we were orphans, And now, because of the Son, Christ the Son, we have been adopted. We rejoice because at one time we were enemies with Christ. And now, because of the reconciling power of the cross, we have been made friends. 
We rejoice because Christ has absorbed the wrath of God and turned it to our favor. We rejoice because Christ carried our unrighteousness and therefore through his blood not only forgave us for our sin, but cleansed us deeply from every stain of the sin that we've committed and that has been committed against us. The gospel is beautiful. It's a mine. Are we mining the gospel? Are we feasting on it? That is a solid, solid joy. And you know, when we continue to feast on what has been done, it gives us a buoyancy in what we're hoping will be done. I've found that when I stop rejoicing in the gospel and I start rejoicing in the things, other things that God has given me, and, and, and he, he has, he's been so kind. But when those things are not there, I get real grumpy and I get real entitled. How about you? You ever do that? I was given use of a cabin up in the mountains a few years ago by a friend. An exquisite gift. Don't pay anything. Use this cabin. I've been doing my master's for about seven years, master's in theology, and that has robbed me of joy from time to time, I must confess. But this cabin was such an incredible gift. It's not luxurious, but just a solid, warm, nice cabin, comfortable and once a month, I'd drive up about an hour and a half and just thank God for this cabin. Lord, what a gift. And then this guy's wife who had the cabin, she would give this incredible gift basket as if the cabin wasn't enough. And the gift basket would be full of coffee and snacks and chocolate and even a little Lake Arrowhead mug because it was in Lake Arrowhead. So cool. And a few months went by, and, I, and I, I would drive up going, hmm, I wonder what's in that gift basket. I hope they put a gift basket there. And the gift basket will always be there. And then after a few more months, I'd be going, I wonder what she's put in my gift basket this time. And the one day I arrived, and there was no gift basket. And I was so frustrated. I was kind of bent out of shape. I felt like God just got hold of me. I said, that's what you often like. I have given you the cabin of salvation, shelter, warmth, family, comfort. And sometimes I give you a gift basket. But when the gift basket is not there, can you still rejoice and be grateful for the cabin? Lord, help us rejoice in the gospel, like Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not His benefits. He has redeemed our life from the pit. He has crowned us with loving kindness. Bless the Lord. You see, some of us, when it comes to joy, we are so frightened of being fake. Because we've seen those fake, happy, clappy Christians, haven't we? Where you come and you say, How are you doing? Blessed, my brother. I'm the head and not the tail. Blessed. And you just go like, Really? Seriously? Or otherwise, we meet someone who's like, they ask us, how are we doing? And you go like, not really good. And they go, oh, that's great. And you just go, they're not listening to me at all. We're very scared of being fake, aren't we? But actually, Paul was not fake about what was going on. How did he describe himself? Sorrowful, yet rejoicing. He was very nuanced about what was going on in his soul. He, he, he wasn't fake at all. What the gospel had done was that it had set Paul free of slavery to his feelings. See, my friends, when we ignore our feelings, we are fake. 
But when we are slavishly following our feelings, actually feelings are a wicked master. Wonderful servant, wicked master. The gospel gives us something solid that anchors us when our feelings are going up and down like a Disney roller coaster. Oh, rejoice in what God has done. Secondly, there's gospel service. He, he opens the letter, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And then he thanks them for partnership in the gospel. They are not just partakers. They're not just feasting on the grace of God. Now they are partners. They are serving together with Paul and Timothy. They're serving others. In fact, they're serving Paul by giving him a financial gift. Paul could have introduced himself as Paul, an apostle. And sometimes he does. He could have introduced himself as Paul, the father of this church. But he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? He's trying to teach them that one of the foundations of his joy is that he is living for the benefit of others. Can you imagine? There's a guy in prison, and all he's worried about is, how are you doing? How can I help you? I long to be with you. I long to encourage you. He is living for the benefit of others. One of the great joy robbers in our lives is when we get so wrapped up in ourselves and we're expecting other people to serve us and help us. Someone said that a man wrapped up in himself is a very small package indeed. And sometimes our selfishness shrink wraps and vacuum packs our soul. And God is just saying, will you just allow me to break you out even if you're in trouble, in confinement, in a place of weakness and sickness? Do you realize that one of the ways to joy is to live for the benefit of others, to serve? It's wonderful to be served and helped, isn't it? But there is no joy like the joy of serving others in the gospel and seeing them grow in the gospel. There's nothing like it. About 20 years ago, I came on to staff at my first church job. I was so looking forward to this. I'd served without pay for all these years, and now I was going to get my reward. And I was a worship leader, and I was a preacher, and I hung out with creatives, and I just thought I was going to get my dream niche job. And it was going to be doing a bit of worship, preaching from time to time, and hanging out with creative musician types. And the leader of that church came to me and said, Alan, what we need is we need an early morning prayer breakfast for businessmen with children. And I said, Terry, let me tell you why that wouldn't be a good idea. Firstly, I don't like breakfast much. Secondly, I really hate mornings. Thirdly, I don't know what to do with businessmen because I'm a creative. And fourthly, I've never had kids. That's not my niche, Terry. It's not my niche. He said, yes, but it's our need. It's our need. Might, might, might not be your niche. It's our need. And I kind of went grumpily off to the first early men's prayer breakfast. And you know what I discovered? I discovered these businessmen, they arrive on time. It's amazing. <laughs> these businessmen, unlike the musicians, they pay for the meal. It's amazing. I like these guys. And I'm not sure if I helped them all that much over that three years. But man, I learned a lot about parenting. I learned a lot about business. And you know what? I developed a love for business folk. I, I'm still creative. I love being with creatives. 
But as I learned to serve the need, probably with a bad attitude at first, I discovered serving muscles I never knew I had. Sometimes we have this, we're looking for the perfect fit, the perfect niche to serve people. And actually, if we like Jesus, Paul is saying servants of Christ Jesus, the ultimate king who emptied himself, came to serve and not be served, can empower us to live for the benefit of others and serve the need, you will be surprised what God will do and you might even find your niche. Let's be empowered by serving in community. You know, Larry Crabb, a great, great psychologist, Christian man, said, depression is not primarily caused by tortured psyches, but by disconnected souls. When we're living by ourselves, living for ourselves, that actually is a great form of joylessness. When we walk into community, we connect with others and we say, how can I help? Might not be my niche, how can I help? Actually, it's the beginning of joy. And then gospel progress. Paul says this, I want you to know that what has happened has served to advance the gospel. This is amazing. He's saying, actually all over the palace guard, the gospel has been heard, and those outside are now speaking the word more boldly than ever before. Paul doesn't want to be in prison, but actually he's seen that the gospel has progressed without him. Can you imagine, Paul, this is the traveling apostle. This is the man who travels around planting churches, strengthening churches, advancing gospel frontiers, And it's not just for selfish reasons that he wants to get out of jail, get out of dodge. He's saying, God, these people need me. These people need me. I just imagine the conversation that Paul must have had when he sung the hymns and there was no earthquake and no prison break. God, the gospel is going to stop. And I imagine Jesus saying, Paul, I am using you powerfully, but actually... I can move without you. What I want you to do, Paul, is just write a couple of letters, just a couple of letters, and see what I can do with them. You can imagine Paul going, letters, I I, I want to visit. Letters? You think of how many millions of Christians over thousands of years have been encouraged and built up and comforted by Paul's prison letters. The gospel advanced without Paul being out of prison. I've found in my own life that one of the primary reasons why I lose my joy is I want to be in control. And actually, I feel like I'm almost indispensable to God's purposes. It's amazing what God can do without me. It's not that we do nothing. Paul had to be faithful in confinement. But actually... People that he'd been trying to equip to be bold only got bold when he wasn't there. Be faithful where you are in confinement and see what God will do. What is your prison? Maybe you've been in a prison kind of situation, perhaps not physical, perhaps physical, and God's got you out, and now you find yourself in confinement. You're saying, get me out of here, God. Get me out of here. And what Paul teaches us to do is to stop praying, get me out of here. God is sovereign. He will get you out if he wants. But actually rather say, God, what do you want me to do here? What what does faithfulness look like here? Paul, write a few prison letters. Maybe your prison is your job. It's your boss. It's your colleagues. Maybe it's your area of study. 
Maybe it's your body. Maybe you're sick. Maybe it's your age. You're just like, I don't have the kind of energy I used to have. Maybe it's a family situation, relationship situation, a child that's tough or, or a marriage, and you're going, get me out of here, please, God. And God is saying, I'm not going to do that. Be faithful and watch what I will do. Can we be faithful in confinement and see what God will do? He will progress the gospel. He will advance the gospel. Who are you chained to? Paul says, the prison guards that I'm chained to, they've heard the word. Who do you feel like, man, this person is like an appendage. I wish, wish I could lose them. You ever feel that about anyone? Don't tell me now. You might be sitting next to them. I had this guy send, send me an email last Easter, a couple of weeks after Easter, and he said, my name's Tyler, I'm a law student, and I've been sitting in church, I enjoy church, but I, I don't know nothing about the Bible or the gospel. Would you mind if I sat with you and uh, you teach me about the gospel. That is a preacher's dream right there. And so I go, I have a coffee with him, and he's all questions, all questions, and I'm trying to answer them, and it's awesome. And I think, this guy's going to come to faith, man. I preach the gospel to him. Next week, he calls. He's like, can I sit with you again? And again. And then he discovered I like soccer. He likes soccer too. He says, can I come around and watch soccer with you? I'm going, whoa, this guy's becoming a little bit of an appendage here. I feel like I'm chained to him, but I'm really challenged by this. Anyway, about probably six months in, he says to me, Alan, I, I, I hear that, uh, that there's some men that go up a mountain once a month, and they pray, and they have breakfast burritos and coffee. I'm not a Christian, but uh, can I join you? I'm interested to see. I'm like, really? I wish some of our Christians wanted to be at that meeting. He says, no, no, I want to be at that meeting. I say, but, but are you okay to pray, Tyler? He says, uh, I've never prayed aloud, never in my life. I say, well, okay, we kind of break up into groups and pray, so, so you just stand next to me. I'll protect you from the weird Christians, and when it comes around to you, I'll pray in your, in your place. He says, no, that's fine. I think he's not going to arrive. He arrives bright and early. We have breakfast, burritos, coffee, and we break up into groups and pray. And every time it comes around to him, I'm praying in his place. I'm running out of things to say. I mean, it's gone around second time. goes around the third time. I'm like, I don't have anything else to pray in his place. And, and Tyler prays. First time, he prays. And he starts. He just says, God. And I'm just going, that's a great start, Tyler. <laughs> he says, thank you that I feel safe in this community. And he says, Thank you that although community is hard, it's good. And thank you that you're teaching me I can trust these men. And thank you that although leadership is scary, it's good. I'm just going, I wish half our people would pray that prayer. That's an amazing prayer. Anyway, a couple of weeks later, we have another coffee. And Tyler says, I'm ready to become a Christian. I just go... I baptized him a couple weeks later. Isn't that amazing? Don't ever think that a person can't come to Christ in a prayer meeting. But I just thought, man, imagine if I just kind of shook off those chains. Get me out of here, Lord. This guy's overboard. He's arriving at my house to watch soccer. Ah. Actually, in some ways I was chained. I still am in some ways chained to him for the sake of the gospel. Let's be faithful with our chains. Finally, I'll land with this. Paul's joy is not just about gospel gratitude. It's not just about gospel service or gospel progress. It's about gospel confidence. 
verse 6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul is rooted in what Christ has already done, but he is confident that Christ will do something great. He's no longer dictating to Jesus how he should do it. He's in prison for heaven's sake. He's just saying, I don't know how, but Jesus is going to complete the work in me and in you and in the church. He's talking first and foremost about the promise of their gift to him. And he's in in essence saying, I'm confident that you promised to help me, and I'm confident that you won't over-promise and under-deliver. Thank you. But there's a much bigger story here. He's saying in every single one of our lives, because Christ began the work in us, he will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. He's talking about a gospel truth that getting saved was not my idea, not your idea. It was God's idea. That if we understand the gospel, the gospel of regeneration, the gospel of foreknowing is that before we wanted anything of God, he chose us in his grace. I don't understand it, but it's beautiful. Because if I chose Jesus, that means that everything relies on me. But if he chose me, that means he's going he's to take me home. It's grace that has led me safe thus far. Grace will lead me home. You're in the middle of a series on testing. And I think what so often happens in this process of Jesus saved me, he justified me, but man, is he going to glorify me? Is he going to make me like him? Romans 8 verse 20, 28, whom he foreknew he justified, whom he justified he glorified, past tense. Really? I thought it's future. Somehow it's past tense. It's a done deal. I don't understand it, but it makes me joyful. Because I know that I'm still in process of being made more like Christ. And some days I make progress. It's three steps forward. Others, others, it's regress. It's two steps backwards. And I get so unhappy when I take two steps backwards. When I fail testing, don't you? And it's almost like the person with the, with the love me not. He loves me when I make progress. He loves me not when I don't. And our sense of God's love goes up and down depending on our progress and our regress. What Paul is saying is that because we stand robed in Christ's righteousness, we are being made like Him, but actually we have been given, imputed, we've been given His righteousness, and therefore the Father smiles on us even when we don't make progress. We live under friendly skies. And because we are hidden in Christ, the same words that the Father said over His Son, this is my Son whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased, He says over us. It doesn't mean that we don't repent. It doesn't mean that we don't cooperate with Him in moving forward and maturing and growing. But we live under friendly skies because of the gospel. And surely that is a foundation of joy for you and I. Do you live with a sense of God loves me, God loves me not? Can we allow the gospel to break us out of that? God does not love you and I because of our performance, but because of Christ's perfect performance. I'll land with this. My sister, growing up, was an exceedingly bad driver. She failed her driver's license numerous times. And she had a very kind mother-in-law. This is mother-in-law honoring day, apparently. 
And on the first test that she went for, she failed it. But the mother-in-law came to her and said, I bought a great bottle of champagne. And when you pass that test, we're going to pop that cork. And she put it in the fridge. My sister failed twice and a third time. And the mother-in-law said, and she was so down, she said, Joanne, I know you're going to pass and we're going to pop that cork. I know. And my sister Joanne failed a fourth time and a fifth time. And this gracious mother-in-law came and said, we are going to pop that cork. Don't get down. I know we're going to pop that cork. She failed a sixth time and a seventh time. And the mother-in-law brought the bottle of champagne, shoved it in her face, and she said, God in her grill, we are going to pop that cork. I know. Now go and learn. Go and practice. Go and pass that test. She passed the eighth time. And the mother-in-law sauntered across and said, I always knew you were going to pass that test. The mystery of God who is with us in failure and who forgives us. He doesn't wink at our sin. He's patient with us. He cleanses us. And then he propels us on and says, come on, come on, I'm with you. And yet Jesus is so confident that he will complete the work begun in us, even our joylessness. He is confident that he can make us more like him who was acquainted with sorrows but had joy above his fellows. That is confidence on which we can rest. That is confidence in which we can rejoice. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you have lived the life that we could not live. And you died the death that we should have died in our place. You gave us your life. You gave us your righteousness. Thank you that you have adopted us. Thank you that you have reconciled us as friends. We thank you that your life has conquered death. We thank you that the enemies of our soul that rob us from joy enemies of sin and of death and of the devil have been conquered. This is the gospel. And we thank you that your gospel empowers us to be faithful in prison. And Lord, we so want you to advance the gospel through our lives. And we say we trust you. We entrust our lives to you. And we want to rest the full weight of our souls and our lives upon this good news. May this good news bubble over again. Restore our souls. We thank you that your gospel doesn't just rescue us. It restores our souls. And I pray that you would be at work in every soul, restoring us from joylessness and giving us joy for your glory and our good. Amen.